Let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear it and to understand it and to apply it. I pray that you would take me out of this message and just let your, your word and your, your spirit shine through and just work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're doing Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. So I'll start by reading that. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All right. So just looking a little bit back on last week, uh, Mark covered the healing of the centurion's servant, and then he raised the widow's son. And just going to the previous verse from my section, is all this stuff is happening. No, I'll go two verses. Fear seized them all, and they, all glo- and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited, visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, and we've seen this mounting more and more as we've gone through here is that word about Jesus is spreading. Uh, you keep seeing big crowds following him. Here it says that all of Judea knows who he is. That's a large area to just have everybody know about him and the surrounding country. I think one of the sections I did before, it mentioned a couple of the people that were there that had literally just walked from neighboring country. We we're talking 60 or 70 miles that's how far away they've heard of him that they, they can go to this man that, that can heal people. So the word's getting around. People, people know about this Jesus. Um, and it's kind of, it's, I, I don't really want to use this example, but it's like Donald Trump. 
Everybody knows about Donald and has an opinion about him. There's no, there's no getting around. Like you can't say, "Oh, Donald Trump, never heard of him." You know, it's like the word of Jesus is out there, and people, I'm sure, then had a variety of opinions about him, and a lot of people seem to feel pretty strongly about it. So the words out there. So John the Baptist, in, at this time, is in prison. Has been for a little while. Um, if you look at the other Gospels, shortly. Basically, Jesus was baptized, and it wasn't that long after that that John was put in prison. They had a brief time where Jesus was at the one place where John and John was at the other. But then, when John got baptized, Jesus withdrew to Galilee, went up there and taught for a while. And so, that was right at the beginning. And now we're to the point where John's been in prison for a little bit. And if you recall what John was in prison for, it was for calling out Herod for taking his brother's wife Herodias. And Herod didn't like that and added that to all his other sins that he imprisoned John. So his, John's disciples have heard this report about Jesus. And I think it's probably likely that you know, perhaps they were even there when John baptized Jesus. So they're aware that there's a connection between John and Jesus here, or at least, yeah, at least aware of it if they weren't even there. Um, how John baptized Jesus and bore witness that he was the Son of God. So they report to John what they've heard. Now I do want to read John chapter 1. You, don't, you can turn there, you don't have to. Verses 29 through 34. So this is when John uh, first sees Jesus and what he says. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day... He, as in John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So interesting, right there, reading what John says, there's no, uh, apparently, there's no doubt there. He's saying, this is, this is the Son of God. You know, God told me the one who I saw this come down on uh, was the one that would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And moreover, he says, the study says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only does he say, this is the Son of God, he also says, he doesn't say you know, that he's come to overthrow the Romans or to sit on the throne necessarily. He says he is the Lamb of God, so the sacrifice of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only does he know for sure that he is the Son of God, but he also seems to have a pretty good idea what his actual mission is. Which then gets interesting when you come back to this section in Luke 7. So John calls two of his disciples to him, sends them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So, our, you know, we had a few months before that John was certain. And here we have the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And 
So, so here we see, as we, and Jesus, a few verses down, which I read when I started out, called John the greatest man born of women. And we see him having doubts about Jesus. And this is actually pretty encouraging to me, <laughs> that one of the all-time greats had doubts about his faith. And, and it kind of, you know, it shows that it's normal that you or I would also have doubts from time to time. And we're look at, looking at John's, uh, John's current state right here. You know, he's been in prison for a while now. Jesus hasn't saved him. You know, though, you know, perhaps when he went into prison, he's like, you know, I've got, got God in my corner. You know, maybe, maybe I'll get out of this type of thing. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be politically moving at all. Although he said that he was the Lamb of God, maybe he thought, you know, that Jesus is going to take back the throne. You know, I'm the forerunner of the king. And, you know, so I've got a special place with the king and the king's coming. And, you know, I'm looking and I hear reports about him and it doesn't seem, I mean, yeah, he's getting a lot of reports about him. People are talking about him, but it doesn't seem like the king, you know. And perhaps John initially envisioned the Messiah, you know, taking over, John having a position there, I, it's hard to tell. There's that speculation. Don't necessarily go with that. But if you think about it, from John's perspective, you know, maybe this wasn't how he envisioned his life going once the Messiah came. Imprisoned, stuck in a dungeon until he was beheaded, and not really seeing necessarily what he was looking for coming out of the Messiah. But what I really want to point out here is how John deals with his doubts. And I think this is a good lesson for us. How he deals with his doubts is to go right to Jesus and to ask him, or at least to send his disciples and ask him, because he couldn't at the time. And that is precisely what we must do. When we have doubts, we should take them right to Jesus. We should take them right to his word. Because I know, at least for me, Make a little room up here. Like when doubt starts starts to creep in, you know, and I pray about it or I think about it, um, and I'll be reminded of things, you know. So I say I start to doubt, but then I think, you know, I'll, I'll be reminded how Jesus was prophesied about hundreds of years before his birth. You know, I'll read the Bible and I'll marvel at how it cuts through everything right to the truth. I'll think about the other religions in the world, the other options, you know, and realize that none of them deal with sin. I'll look around at creation and know there must be a creator. And I'll read the Bible some more and think about how all these different authors over thousands of years never contradicted one another, but instead just made the same truth of Jesus and the cross more and more clear. And I'll look back at my life and know beyond doubt that any time I've followed him, he has never once led me astray. And as I start to, those things start to add up, even if I'm feeling doubts, logically, and in my mind, you know, it's pretty easy to, to just say, you're just feeling that. Like, there, Jesus is the answer. You know, if you go back to Jesus, you pray to Jesus, you go back to his word, you will get answers. And, you know, it goes without saying, there will be times in life when we are confused and hurting, and we will naturally doubt. But like John, we must go to Jesus um, and when I think of hurting people who question God, um, or pe- when I think of people who are hurting who question God, uh, one of the first scenarios I think of is Jesus on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And 
If you think about that question, first of all, Jesus asking God, you know, why have you forsaken me? First of all, that's comforting to me that Jesus, Jesus himself would ask that of God when he's in a position that is not very fun. Um, but then also you start to think about why has God forsaken Jesus in that situation? And the answer is a pretty good answer. Um, the answer is that so anybody who believes in Jesus could be saved, could be redeemed, and that Christ would be glorified and given authority over all things. Uh, and really, so like if you're asking that question, you know, why have you forsaken me? And you think about the answer, you're like, you're right, it's worth it. And kind of along that same line, when we have doubts, you know, I've come to the conclusion that if you're going to question God, you better prepare for a really good answer. Like, there's going to be times where you're going to question God, but question him, but get ready and get your good answer. Let's see. Now, not to be overlooked, because this is also in play here, is that John, John uh, sending this question to Jesus may not have been about him and his doubts. It may have been about his disciples. You know, he may have still felt pretty firm about it, um, but his disciples may have been unsure and they come to him and he says, go ask him. And this is another good lesson for us in that when we know people who are confused or hurting or doubting, we send them to Jesus. We give them the gospel. We open up the word with them. Uh, I like, uh, you know, well, so basically as I, as I was thinking about this and just, you know, the gospel the word of God, you know, we don't need to get tricky with it. It's like, these things right here will sustain us. We don't, you know, that's, that's what we've got. And I, I, one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. And like, same thing, like with the scriptures. Like, you don't have to defend it. You don't have to, you know, manipulate it somehow. You just let the lion out and do its job. Then I also, a similar thought here was, uh, love the movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, but remember the Titans and, and the coach, you know, when they're first going to their, their training camp and the guy comes up, he's like, awful thin playbook. And he goes, seven plays, you know, and like they work like Novocaine. Give them time. They'll always work. And same thing with, you know, the gospel, the word of God. We don't need to get tricky here. Give them time. They'll work as much as God wants them to. Now, verse 20. So when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And this is one of those that is like the great question of humanity here. That it always, the part that troubles me about this is how few people ask this question. Like whether you're saved or not saved, it's like, can you just ask this question and give it some time? I mean, if you come to the conclusion that the answer is no, that Jesus is not the one who is to come, then at least you'll have thought it through. But here, you know, this question of of just Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you God? Are you the one who is to come, or is it something else? That if we'd ask that question of Jesus. If, if we get everybody to ask that question and think about it, like we'd get a lot further. It just kind of bothers me that so many people don't even get that far. There's just an apathy, apathy that they don't, they don't even want to explore and know. 
They just kind of go about their lives. Verse 21. So Jesus responds. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Which is fascinating. So they come up and they say, are you the one? And Jesus doesn't just say, yes. He doesn't even talk. Well, I mean, he might, but that's not what it records here. He shows them. Kind of the, the idea of the saying, the proof is in the pudding. You know, it's not, you can talk about the pudding all you want, but, you know, hand you a spoon and say, try it. You know, and you try it and you're like, that, that's the real stuff right there. And so Jesus doesn't say, yep, I'm the Messiah. He starts healing people. And, and I think this is just a fantastic example of, like, of how we are to live. That if we've truly been changed by Jesus, our lives ought to look like we've been changed by Jesus. Also, I love how there's a humility in Christ's answer. Um, it's like, and you know, I grew up playing a lot of sports, so, so I'll use a sports reference here. Kind of. It's like the guy who, there's always somebody that just talks about how great he is at a sport and always talking about it and talk about it. Compared to the guy that says nothing, you'd have no idea, but then when you get out and you play with him or you're watching him and you see him and you're like, wow, like I would have had no idea, but he is really, really good. And there's a humility in that, except for instead of sports, we're talking about life. <laughs> with, and Jesus is the, is the humble side of things. That's you know, showing us the same, to live the same way, with humility, um, to, to live our lives in a way that, um, as I was thinking about it, and this is pretty convicting, for me at least, that if someone asked you if you were a Christian, if you didn't answer yes, but they just stayed with you for a couple days and shadowed you, would they know beyond a doubt, without you ever saying yes, that, whoa, guy is very much a Christian, that his faith is very, very important to him, and it is the key aspect of his whole life. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, you know, I got think of, thinking about raising my kids, um, and that was where it's like, of course they know I call myself a Christian. What is important that the way I lead my life, I mean, really for all of us, but to, to apply to myself, in front of them, shows them that I'm a Christian, shows them that... Uh, that this is what's most important to, to, uh, to me. Sometimes I do okay, and a lot of times I got to work on that. Now, another thing uh, in verse 21 that, that I also kind of marveled at was that in that hour, he healed, you know, that Christ did this in an hour, you know, in 60 minutes. He basically, like, they asked him the question, he's like, in, within 60 minutes, he. What's it say here? He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So he just sits down in an hour and just wipes out disease in that town. You know, anybody that's blind, they can suddenly see. All the lepers, they're healed. You know, if I, plagues, like, I, you know, any sickness, you know, it's, all, it's just all gone. He wipes out all the effects of sin in that town. I shouldn't say all the effects. The physical maladies from sin, they're gone. And then he answers, hold on, let me make sure that I didn't have more. Oh, I did. Okay, we'll come back. So 
I, I was reading one, one uh, commentary on it, and I loved, loved it. Is like, in, like, you can take this for what it's worth. But the guy interpreted John's question kind of as, why don't you do more? You know, why are you just kind of moving around in the wilderness or, you know, or wherever? You're not, you're not making any political moves. You're not, whatever, whatever it is you envision that he would do, whether taking the throne, uh, you know, leading the synagogue, overthrowing, the, whatever it was. You know, it was just a, he kind of interpreted it as, you know, I'm, as, as from John, as I'm watching from prison here, why aren't you doing more? And so Jesus' answer is to heal all these people. Um, and his answer shows that, and I thought this was a good point, that for the most part, the way of the Lord's service is in the plotting perseverance of doing the apparently small things. That Jesus just sits down and cares for each individual it's not a, oh, we got to take over the kingdom. It's, it's more of a just, you know, in this hour, right now, I'm going to care for each person that I can care for. And that's the work of the kingdom. So in verse 22 here, when Jesus finally speaks his message to John, he gives, you know, he gives this message that's already been backed with action. And I love that this message is also pointing right to the gospel. So he answers to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So as you read these two, uh, uh, as you read this verse, this all has heavy spiritual ramifications. That if you think about how John first, when he first saw Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and thinking of it in a spiritual sense, with the sin being the biggest enemy that we have, if you interpret it that way, and you and you look at Jesus' answer, he's basically saying, you know, I'll read it here. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's saying. Death and sin are being defeated right in front of me. Like, forget about the kingdom, you know, forget about the synagogue, the throne, the Romans, all that stuff. Like, literally, everywhere I walk, death and sin just recede because they can't stand up to me. And then he backs it up with verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this, I think, shows that Jesus knew that he wasn't fulfilling the role the Jews expected of him. Uh, so when John has doubts and sends his messengers, uh, Jesus answers in this way that show he, shows he's spiritually and humbly saving the people. Jesus finishes by saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He understands he's not meeting expectations. And here we learn the important lesson that when God doesn't meet your expectations... Change your expectations. That just to think of it like we are blessed when we get on God's page instead of becoming offended when he doesn't get on our page. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And I love this here in that we're not going to talk good about John until all his people are, are gone. You know, they can't report back to him that I was giving him a pat on the back. This isn't about flattery. This is about truth. 
you know, I'm not saying this to have a good report back to John that, hey, hey, we're buddies. And then, you know, so, so his guys are gone. It's just Jesus talking to the people. And Jesus goes on to call him the greatest man born of women. And so I just wanted to point that out because as we go through what he says about John and looking a little bit at John's life, I think it's a good idea to look at John as a very good example of what, uh, yeah, as a very good example of what we want to live like and to look particularly at what Jesus saw in John. And the reason I love looking at John as an example is because you have, obviously Christ is an example, um, and, and not to downplay that at all, because he's the best example, but Christ is God, you know. But John is such a great example of somebody not being God, you know, who still is a godly man who follow, follows the Lord. So I think we can gain, gain a little bit by looking at, at his example in particular. You know, for, for example, when he says, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. Like, Jesus can't say that. You know, but because that's not how it works. But John is not God. That has to be his attitude. And in that way, he is a different type of example for us of how we should live our lives. So first, Jesus points out, here, where are we? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Points out that John was in the wilderness. You know, if you think about that, he was separate from the world, out where he could spend time alone with God. And he says, a reed shaken by the wind? And this is to indicate, and you'll see as you keep going, that John was not a reed shaken by the wind. Had he been a reed shaken by the wind, he easily would have bowed down to Herod instead of calling him out about uh, Herodias and his brother Philip. That instead, John was a rock, that he was firm in his convictions and unmoved by the winds of the world, no matter what the culture said or the leaders that he wasn't gonna, he wasn't a reed shaking around. He was not moving. He had the truth, and he was standing on it. Then the next thing. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. John was not dressed in soft clothing. He didn't live in luxury. On the contrary, he lived a hard life of self-denial. Instead of pampering his body, he brought it under subjection. His whole life was devoted to the cause of God. Then Jesus goes on to say, you know, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury in king's courts. You know, this is a similar point, you know, just taking a little bit further of John's lifestyle, like Jesus, was not made for politics in king's courts. There was not luxury. There was not flattery. There was not bending of the will of whoever they needed to please to accomplish what they wanted. There was just a firm stand on the truth. Then it says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So all those things that he goes through, you know, he's, did you go out to see, you know, a man in soft clothing, uh, a reed in the wind, you know, somebody that would be in like king's courts? No, John was a prophet. He was better than all of that. And he sought to please the Lord instead of pleasing men, telling the truth and proclaiming the word at all costs. And here, let me reiterate, that we ought to try to emulate John. And then Jesus further explains John's role. This is, whom it, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. 
So John was sent as a forerunner to Jesus. <clears throat> and as Jesus points out you know, in the previous verses, the good traits of John, that he wasn't swayed by men or politics, he didn't live in luxury, we begin to see that, Jesus, that John's lifestyle was part of his forerunning. You know, if Jesus was to be an earthly king, I think the forerunner to, to him would have been a little bit different than this recluse prophet you know, out in the wilderness. It would have been more, picture more like a herald, you know, well-spoken. It would come in and wow the, the courts, you know, and, and just look dazzling. But that wasn't what John was. That wasn't what Jesus wanted. Jesus wasn't coming to, to dazzle the people and take his rightful place on the throne. At least not then. He'll come back and do that. But it won't be for dazzling and, and, uh, and, and impressing. It'll, but it will be impressive. Sorry, I'm rambling now. So let's see. So then we get to verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I'll stop there for a second. And kind of, kind of as I said, the great part about him is that his whole existence was for the purpose of pointing to Jesus. That was why he came into the world. That was why he was miraculously born in his Everything you read about him is to point to Jesus. <clears throat> and just like, like I've said, that ought to be each of our life's goals, the point to Jesus, that he must increase and I must decrease. It's all about him. And then Jesus goes on to say the second part of that. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you can take a lot out of that. Basically, it doesn't matter how great you are on this earth. Like here we have the greatest man you know, I'm, I, that Jesus is calling him. He is the greatest man ever born of women. And yet, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Like, <laughs> they're like, don't even try. Don't even try to get in the kingdom of heaven based on how great you are, how good your works are, because he's the greatest and the least of the kingdom of heaven is better than him. So even if you approach how great John is, which good luck with that, not enough. Let's see. That it was so in you know reading reading into that further that that there's only one thing that gets a person into the kingdom, and that is nothing of their own doing. It is the blood of Christ. And believing in Christ and being redeemed by him is worth more than anything this world could ever have to offer. And it's worth more than anything that you could ever do. That just by having his spirit in you and being born again into the kingdom of God, that's immediately better than the greatest man. So then we get to verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, th these two verses always make me like almost chuckle because I think it aptly describes how people act. Uh, they love it when something benefits them, and they don't like it when something indicts them. And really, I get the feeling, even though, you know, the people who were baptized by John, that was good. But I, I get the feeling here that the truth of it really isn't of that import, importance to them. They're just happy that, that they got a pat on the back there. It's like if somebody said, everybody who lives in New York, oh, sorry, Thomas, 
Everybody who lives in New York and Pennsylvania, you know, is something good. And we're like, that is a just saying. You know, like we have nothing to do with it. Like we, we were fortunate enough to live in New York that we got declared, you know, whatever it was. But it's like we just declare it just because it benefits us. So that, that like I said, that part always just kind of makes me smile. And like looking at the state of man, and I think it accurately sums it up a little bit. Uh, but to go back to to the people that did accept John's baptism, I will point out the ease with which known sinners receive Jesus, receive the teaching of John in repentance compared to those who already considered themselves, considered themselves righteous, that there was no room or need for Jesus in their minds or hearts. And that is a dangerous place to be. And then, so Jesus goes on to say, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus once again talks about the hard-heartedness of this generation uh, and showing how they will criticize and not accept God no matter how he tries to reach them. Like, right, you know, is it, uh, I guess, I'll, sorry. And while one might contend that this particular generation was hardened, so that Christ would be rejected and crucified to fulfill God's plan, I think I would make the argument that this is a le- less a generation of hard-heartedness and more a state of fallen man. That throughout, you know, right from the start of the book to today, people who don't want to believe will find ways not to believe. We see that the whole time. I mean, like one of the things I think about is is that always amazes me is the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They watched Moses do all those signs. They watched God uh, put the plagues on Egypt. They watched him destroy Egypt. They, you know, something that would have been unthinkable a few days before, they walked out of Egypt with all of Egypt's wealth, and Egypt was so destroyed they couldn't do anything about it. Then when they did come after them, God, they, they watched as God parted the sea for them, and, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. And then they get to the other side, and a day later they're like, we're all going to die because we can't get water. And not to, not to pick on them too much because I don't know how different we really are. But just pointing out that that's the state of man is that no matter the signs they see, no matter how obvious it is, it's the natural state of man to not believe because of the fall. Which another passage kind of related to this I wanted to point out was Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. I won't read it all. Just, so this is the, the parable, or I, there's debate over whether it's a parable or not. Uh, with, with the rich man and Lazarus, or, and they both die, and Lazarus is with Adri- Abraham. And, and I'll start, and the, the rich man calls out and wants Lazarus to bring him some water, and Abraham says, no, there's a great chasm. Um, and then so the rich man calls out and he says then I beg you father to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent and he said to, said to him if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead 
And I mean, how easy is it for people to say like, oh, I'd believe if, if such and such happened, but I won't believe the word of God. You know, I, sure, you can say those things, but like, I need more proof than that. And it's right here, he's saying, you can give them all the, <laughs> whatever proof you want, you can stick it right in front of their faces and they'll find a way to, to explain it off. I mean, look, Jesus, because then, you know, Jesus, he did come back from the dead. And what did they do? They, <laughs> they paid off the guards to say that he had been, that his body had been taken, even though they knew the truth. And they like, like how much, how much more can you, like the guards come back and say, there was a bright light and boom, like it all blew up and now he's gone, he's alive again. And they say, ah, shoot, how can we cover this up? Like that's, that's what man does. And so just kind of the point, and there's other scriptures I, I forgot to look up one or two of them, but basically no matter the proof, an unregenerated person will reject God. Save the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. We will not accept the Lord. And even thinking of the example of, of evolution, that people will come up with anything, like saying that people came from a pool of amino acids that slowly evolved over billions of years into the most complex thing that our people, that like the greatest of scientists can't even remotely, you know, completely understand. Um, they'd rather believe that than that we have a creator and be forced to face the truth of how we have fallen and are sinful and need to be redeemed with him. And so here in this example that Jesus gives, you know, he gives John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so they would discard the messages of John and Jesus for directly opposite reasons. It's, there's, they wouldn't have, they, it's literally just showing, it doesn't matter, they're not accepting you. Because John, they say, you know, he doesn't eat or drink, he's out, he has a demon. And then Jesus comes and he's like, well, he does eat and drink, he's a glutton, a glutton and a drunkard. You know, they're just, they're not going to accept it. And then verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And so the idea of the wise man is proved to be wise by his actions. And looking at the lives of Jesus and John, you see that very much true. So with a more, more of a focus on Jesus and kind of what I was talking about with the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is you see his actions, you see how he went through it all. And yeah, if you're talking about just this world, was being crucified, does that look like being justified by wise actions? No. But then if you look at the end, where he is glorified, where he is crowned, where he is given authority over all things, and he is the king of eternity, suddenly his actions look much more justifiable <laughs> and, and, and with a much, a much wiser and far-looking uh, outlook than anybody that, w- that, had him, that was crucifying him or wanted him crucified even considered. And instead they find themselves, the further out you go from those immediate actions, in a worse and worse place. And this kind of also matches, you know, the saying of the, the wisdom is justified by our actions. The same thought that when Nicodemus came to Jesus in uh, John chapter 3, he says, we know you are from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. 
And there's a couple other areas where they say, like, he must be of God, for who else has ever done anything like this before? And it's the same thought that you can look by the actions. Like, the, like I said before, the proof is in the pudding. When you see these actions, you can rightfully come to the conclusion that God is with him because no one can do these things unless God is with him. <clears throat> and then still on this, those who accept Jesus' message will be proven wise for all eternity. Like, you want to be, we want wisdom to be justified by our children. You want that to apply to you. Stick with Jesus and you'll be all right. So let's end with the thought here that we want our actions to prove us wise down the road. That instead of immediate gratification in this life, let's think more about when we're standing in front of God on the judgment day and let's act in a way today and tomorrow that when we're there in front of God, we will be proven wise and the Lord may say, well done, my good and faithful servant. All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the work your son did, uh, for, for his work to save us on the cross, for, for all the things that he said that we can learn from, from the example that he gave. We thank you for the example that John gave. Uh, we pray that, that we would take these things to heart, uh, that you would keep working in us and keep, keep, uh, keep at us, even, even though we, we are uh, stubborn people, that you would work through that and help us to, to cling to you and give us your wisdom so that when we are in front of you, you would be proud of us for what you have done to us. In Jesus' name, amen.